Morning. I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 1 in just a moment. If you are using the Pew Bible there in front of you, that is on page 982. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 in just a moment. Uh, rather than uh, attempting to introduce this morning's uh, subject uh, with my own words, I want to allow our Lord Himself to introduce uh, this subject to you. So as you're turning in First Peter, hear now the word of the Lord uh, from the book of John. Jesus Himself said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, the apostle Peter was standing there. He heard these words. He's lived out these words, and he's attempting to prepare you and to prepare me to live out these words as well. He wants to arm us for suffering. So let's get God's word before us this morning in the book of First Peter Chapter 4, would you stand with me for the honor of reading God's Word? First Peter chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And to him belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come to your word and by your spirit, you can teach us what you would have us to know. I pray, Lord, now that uh, by your spirit and through your word, you would help us to understand what you would want us to know this morning. We're thankful that from uh, from the youngest of age to the oldest here, Lord, we can all learn from your word. I pray you would help us to focus and hear what you would have us to say, uh, what you would say to us this morning through your word. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. I have mentioned before, but now is a good time to remind you that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions that you see there in your Bible, they are helpful, but they are not inspired. 
Uh, God did not inspire the chapter divisions and the verse divisions in the same way that he inspired his word. Those were added later on, and they're very helpful. It made it a whole lot easier for me to just tell you to turn to 1 Peter 4, verse 1, rather than saying, uh, go to that first letter that Peter wrote, and about halfway through there, after he talks about the spirits in prison, uh, go to this part, and for me to keep giving you directions on how to get to the same place that I am. Uh, Verse divisions and chapter divisions are very helpful, but the, the drawback is that sometimes we might think that the Bible is like a novel that we're reading. And so we think, oh, it's a new chapter, so it's a new idea, something new is coming. But Peter is continuing to build and and teach us what he's been working through, this big idea, all the way back back since chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He's still continuing on in that same frame of mind. And I trust you noticed that even as we began in verse 1, since therefore. You know that those words mean we're, we're pointing back to something. Peter is building upon uh, something he's already talked about. Uh, because we, we saw last week in chapter 3, verse 18, he said, For since uh, Christ also suffered once for sins. And now today he's beginning, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Peter's continuing to build on this idea that as we seek to do good in a world that will often do us wrong, there is quite likely suffering that will face each of us. And so Peter has first taken us last week as we saw that Christ suffered and Christ had victory over his suffering. And because of his suffering through his death, burial and resurrection, we too can have victory uh, in this life and ultimately with him for eternity. And so building upon that, Peter uh, moves along in what we call chapter four, verse one. And he gives us this big idea. You see there in verse one, it says, arm yourselves. Now, we pretty much already have an idea of what he's talking about with arm yourselves. Uh, ever since I was a young boy, I enjoy watching westerns, whether it's a movie or a TV show. I enjoy westerns. Uh, some of them are rather predictable. Some of them uh, attempt to be unique and, and surprise you. But whether or not uh, what age of the movie, whether it's uh, the really great ones, which are about you know, 60, 70 years old, or the, the weaker modern versions, whichever Western you're watching, they're all going to have a time when there's going to be a big showdown. And when the time for the showdown comes, whoever the hero of the story is, he's going to arm himself as much as possible. He's going to make sure his pistol is loaded. He's going to make sure that his rifle is loaded. He's going to make sure he's got extra shells. He's going to try to get into a good position to protect himself. He's going to do everything he can to situate himself and arm himself for the battle that is coming. Is that what Peter has in mind here? Not quite. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. When Peter tells us that suffering is coming, our first instinct is not uh, to grab our gun and make sure we have extra ammunition. There may be a time and place for that, but as Peter is explaining this morning, we're to arm ourselves, and I believe he says we're going to arm ourselves with right thinking and with right living. So in verses 1 through 6, we're going to see that Peter tells us to arm ourselves with right thinking. And in verses 7 through 11, to arm ourselves with right living. So what are the weapons of our warfare? Because we wrestle, wrestle not against flesh and blood, we're not using uh, weapons of this world. We're not using guns and rifles and ammunition, but we're using the Word of God to shape us, to form us uh, into right living and right belief. And so uh, Peter tells us here in verse 1 that we're to uh, arm ourselves with the right way of thinking. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, 
arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What way of thinking is that? Well, perhaps your mind first goes to that passage we read earlier in the book of Philippians where Paul tells us, have the same mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's certainly in play. But Peter is pointing back uh, to what he's already told us Jesus's thoughts were in, the, in chapter three, verse 17, where he says it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. This was Jesus's way of thinking that it's better to suffer for doing good. And Peter knows that this is completely contrary to the way we normally think. This is the opposite of the way we normally act. And that's why he's digging in. He's trying to help us see that even though uh, this is the complete opposite of our flesh, that we don't want to suffer willingly. We don't want to suffer well. He's telling us that according to God himself, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And so Peter answers here in these first six verses at several things, at least five things that I've noticed of wrong ways of thinking. And he's helping us see, no, God actually wants us to think in this way. So the first thing that Peter tells us here in this section, uh, the wrong way of thinking is that we often believe that suffering is incompatible with blessing. And that's the way we typically think. We think, well, if I'm suffering right now, there's no way that God is blessing me. In fact, there are entire uh, fields of Christianity. There are churches that would teach you that if God is blessing you, then that means you have physical, material wealth, that you don't have any problems in the world. And that's what many Christians believe, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Look at what he says here at the end of verse one. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, at first, you, you might think all sorts of things about what that verse says. Uh, perhaps you might think, well, I need to, to seek out suffering in order that I can somehow uh, earn favor with God. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. And he's not talking about uh, us ever reaching a point of perfection. It may sound that way at, at the first glance, but we know that the whole of Scripture teaches us that that's not true. Uh, John tells us in his first letter that he who says he has no sin does not have the truth in him. If you say you're not a sinner, then you're a liar. There's never a point in time that we will ever reach perfection in this life. Christian perfectionism is not a true doctrine. But what Peter is teaching us here, that when we suffer, and when we suffer in the way that Christ has taught us, this is evidence of the new life within us. It's evidence that Christ is working in us. So even when we suffer, it doesn't necessarily mean that God is not blessing us. He may be blessing you in a way to make you more uh, like his son, Jesus Christ. He may be growing you in that way. So what does it mean that whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? As I've mentioned, it, I, I think it means that there's evidence of Christ working in us. But I think it also goes back to what we just sang a few moments ago. In Christ alone, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Before we come to faith in Christ... Sin has complete power over us and it has the penalty over us that we are carrying the penalty of sin. If we die without trusting Christ, we will pay that penalty. We will die and be punished forever for our sins. But Christ has taken that punishment on himself. So we no longer bear the penalty for sin. In this life, we're still somewhat under the power of sin, but Christ is breaking that. Sin's curse has lost its grip on us and we don't have to sin like we used to. There should be a marked difference between the way we live now and the way we lived before we came to Christ. And we know that one day we will be with him. 
with Christ forever, and we will be free even from the presence of sin. But this first faulty way of thinking that Peter is helping us uh, set our minds on the right way of thinking is we don't need to say that suffering is incompatible with blessing. God is working in us and through us, and sometimes that means suffering. As Peter keeps moving, remember, uh, he's already told us in chapter 1 that we're to prepare our minds for action. Christianity is a thinking religion, and so that's why we're, uh, the weapons of our warfare are our minds and our bodies and how we serve Christ. And so I believe he tells us uh, here in verse 2, let's look, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, I know that I'm saved, and I'm glad I've got that for the future. Right now, I'm just going to live how I want to. That may be a common way of thinking, but it's a wrong way of thinking. Uh, If Christ has saved you, Christ has changed you, you're not waiting to live for Christ in the future. You should live for him now. It's not just fire insurance that we've received. It's not just, I have my eternity settled, and so I'm going to live how I want to right now. If you say that, I would have strong reservations about what you're saying about your faith in Christ. Because Christ has changed us, and so we don't want to live anymore for the human passions. Peter is saying the rest of the time, the time that we have left in the flesh, in this life, we ought to spend it not on human passions, not on human desires, but on the will of God. He continues in verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. This carries on with this idea that uh, because I've settled my eternal destiny, then I don't need to worry about this life. No, he's saying all the time that has passed, that was sufficient. That was long enough to be working for Satan, to doing the works of this world. Now we ought to live for the will of God. One of the many pleasures that I have as your pastor is that as I get to know you and I get to have longer conversations with you than we get to have in passing on Sunday morning, is that I get to hear your stories and I get to hear how you came to faith in Christ. And although nobody's story is identical, uh, there are some common things that I notice. Uh, sometimes when someone will, will tell me about their life before they came to trust in Christ, they'll, they'll start talking and they'll tell me a little bit about it and then they'll just pause and say, well, that was past. That was enough. I'm done with all of that. What a, what a marvelous example of what this verse is teaching us. That time to do the will of the world, the will of Satan, the will of the Gentiles, that was enough. We've moved past that. Christ has saved us. That was sufficient. That was complete. We don't need to live that way anymore. Well, what is the way of the Gentiles? What is the, the will of the world? He says here at the end of verse 3, well, it's, it's living in sensuality. It's passions. It's, it's drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. I'm not going to go into great detail on that because I think you get the idea. Even the way that the culture was marked in that world 2,000 years ago, there's not a lot of difference in that in the ways of the world in our culture today. There are some differences, but overall, uh, they're pretty similar. Living for Satan in any age looks basically the same. But Peter keeps going. He tells us what happens after Christ has made that change in our life. And he also corrects our thinking in another area. Sometimes we think, uh, very with a good heart, we think that people will be thankful when we tell them about Jesus. But what does he tell us here in verse 4? He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So the people that we used to know, 
the, the people of the world, when they see us change, they're not excited about it. They're surprised that we don't join with them, the text says. They're surprised we don't run with them anymore. We don't run with the same crowd that we used to run with. Some of you have had this experience before. Uh, some of your best friends in the world, when you came to faith in Christ and you wanted to tell them about the change that Christ had brought in your life, they weren't happy for you. They didn't want to hear about it. They didn't understand why you didn't keep doing the things that you used to do. You may have been the ringleader and they're wondering, why in the world have you changed? And they say, I don't want to hear about this Jesus. Sometimes we think people are just automatically going to be thankful. They'll be grateful to hear about what Christ has done. But they're surprised. They're shocked. They don't understand why you don't run with them anymore. And what do they do? They malign you. The end of verse four, they speak against you. They speak harshly against you. They say, you're just shoving your religion down my throat. And you say, no, I'm just here to tell you about Jesus. They say, no, you're here to judge us. Say, no, I was just like you. I'm just here to tell you about Jesus and what he's done for me. Sometimes we expect people who used to be our closest friends to be thankful for what we have to say to them. And they don't want to hear it. They malign us. They speak against us. Now, what Peter says here in this verse gives us an idea of what type of persecution they were experiencing at that time. Remember, Peter is writing uh, to people in modern day Turkey. And as much as we can gather from church history at that time, about the seventh decade of the first century, there wasn't a whole lot of state sponsored persecution. The, while Nero in Rome was certainly going against Christians there in that region that we now call Turkey, we don't see a lot of that kind of animosity and hatred towards Christians. And perhaps this helps us understand that they're not as far removed from us as we would think. Because at this point in time, we don't experience anything like that here in this country right now. But Peter's letting us know, he's tipping us off, that the biggest persecution they would face is when their friends would come to them and malign them and speak against them and, and say all sorts of evil, false, wicked things about them. Now that sounds a lot closer to home. When people that we used to know, people that uh, we used to could work together with, even if we weren't fellow believers, we all had the same basic worldview and, and we could all get along. But as the culture continues to change, uh, Christians are not held in high esteem. Christians are not spoken of well. Christians are spoken of as the enemy. There on that, that string of words there at the end of verse 3 when it mentions lawless idolatry. I, I do want to talk about that for just a second because... Uh, in that day and time, their religious world and their political world, their social world were just so interrelated. So if you took up a new religion, if you became a Christian, it wasn't so much that you just had a new faith. You were now a bad citizen. You were disrespectful to the government. You were completely strange. You see, they do all these things and it's normal to them. But now you're the strange one. You're not living that way. And so people in Peter's day find themselves in the same situation that we find ourselves in sometimes. Sometimes Christians are accused of being bad citizens, that we don't love our government, that we don't want to serve our country, that we don't want what's best for our country. We're looked at as if we're the strange ones, if we're the ones in the wrong. And Peter is preparing us for that. He's letting us know that we may think that they're going to be thankful to hear about the message of Christ, but that's not always true. Peter also wants to, to disavow us of this idea that the wicked will prosper without punishment. 
Because sometimes when we look at the evil world around us and we see them, it looks like things are going great for them. We're over here suffering for Christ and people just they're sinning and they're not having any punishment. And it looks like they've got it made. And Peter wants to help us arm ourselves with the right thinking. Look at verse five. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give an account. Now, we don't say that in a vindictive manner. We don't say that uh, eagerly looking for the punishment of the lost. But we say that with the grim reality that all who reject Christ will pay that punishment. They will be separated. They will be punished forever. They will face the wrath of God forever because they have rejected Christ. So in God's economy, justice delayed is not justice denied. We know that no matter how long it may look like on this earth that sin goes unpunished, there will come a day when Christ will return and he is the judge of the living and the dead and he sees all things. Death is not even an escape for those who have rejected Christ. When you study World War II, you see some of the the famous Nazi generals as they knew their time was coming up. Rather than facing the punishment for their crimes, they took their own lives. Hitler did this. Rommel did this. Many others. They took their own lives. Why? They thought they could escape punishment if they took their own life. But Christ is the judge of both the living and the dead. All sins that have not been covered on the cross will be punished. But here's the beautiful thing for for you and for me. Our judge, he is the just and the justifier. Christ, the one who will judge the living and the dead. He, if you can picture that courtroom as he's judging all who have rejected him. When one of his children steps forward, Christ comes down off the bench and he stands next to us as our defense attorney. He stands beside us as our advocate with the father. And he looks at God, the father and says, this one's mine. He's with me. She's with me. I've covered their sins by my blood on the cross. And so even as Christ stands ready to judge the living and the dead, all will give an account. But we can be thankful for the salvation that has come in Christ. You see, believers were told in chapter 3, verse 15, that, that we're to be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. But those who have rejected Christ, they're to be prepared to give an account for why they have rejected Christ. One other uh, flawed, faulty way of thinking that Peter addresses here in this first passage, the first half of this passage, is that there's no difference in the outcome for the lost and for the saved. You see, all people die. And so lost people look at us and say, look, you're punishing yourself. You're, you're trying to live a life of self-control. We're doing whatever we want to do. We're having fun along the way, and you're going to die just like we're going to die. And sometimes we might be tempted to think, you know, they're right. The outcome for all of us is the same. But Peter lets us know in verse 6, there's a very different outcome for those who have trusted Christ. He says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now, at first, that might sound quite difficult. It might sound like we're going back to uh, last week's passage with uh, people from the dead and all of that. But that's not what's going on here. I believe what Peter's referencing 
is simply that Jesus came to this earth. He preached the gospel. And by the time this letter was written, some of those believers had already died. They were already with the Lord. But their fate was not the same as those who died without Christ. Those who die in Christ, they are made alive in the spirit the way God is. They will live forever. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But for those who have uh, rejected Christ, they will live under the wrath of God forever in eternal punishment. So there actually is a difference in outcome of both the saved and the lost. So Peter's going through these different things. He's helping correct our thinking. He's helping us prepare our minds for action. To arm ourselves for the suffering that is to come, we have to have the right way of thinking. But not only do we need the right way of thinking, we need the right way of living. Verses 7 through 11. Uh, Peter tells us that those who are armed with the right way of living... We're going to be marked by several things. We're going to be marked by prayer, by love, by hospitality, by service, and by praise. Peter begins in verse 7 here saying, The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. He said earlier uh, in verse 2 that we're going to live the rest of the time. The rest of the time. There's a great emphasis in this passage about time. Time is flipping away, slipping away. Every day that passes, we're one day closer to being with Christ. So if the end of all things is at hand, how shall we live? Does he say that we are to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may die? No, that's the way many uh, pagans thought in that day. Well, what about uh, perhaps a more recent philosopher in country music? If, if the end of all time is at hand, does that mean we should live like we are dying? Should we go check things off of our bucket list and go do things that uh, we need, we were hoping to do at some point in life, and we say, well, the end of time is at near. Maybe I should focus on these things. Maybe we want to be like Christians in the church at Thessalonica. We say, Christ is coming. He's returning soon. So I'm going to quit working and I'm just going to sit around and wait. None of these are the right attitude for Christians. Even as the time, the end of all things is at hand. Time is running short. We're to live by the normal ways that Christ has given us. We don't, he doesn't give us extraordinary things to do, earth-shattering things to do here. He tells us to pray and to love, and to be hospitable, and to serve one another, and to praise our God. So because the end of all things is at hand, we're to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. Self-controlled and sober-minded. Those don't necessarily sound like fun things to do. Those are not the things that children uh, put posters on their wall about, that they want to grow up and do those things. Those are not earth-shattering things. But they're critically important in the life of the Christian. To be self-controlled, one of the fruits of the Spirit, and to be sober-minded, clear-minded for the sake of our prayers. When we are self-controlled and when we are clear-minded, we know better how to pray. As we've looked at the the events in the world around us these last few weeks, there have been many times that I uh, imagine you like me, we might think that the world is out of control. We might think that... uh, that all hope is lost, that there's just nothing we can do. We're just uh, amazed and confused at why things are the way they are. But when we have a clear eye on the future, when we understand who is in control, when we understand that Christ will come as the judge of the living and the dead, that he will make all things new, he will make all things right, then we can be sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. We can pray to God knowing that he is the one who can work 
and intervene. You see, we were not made to know all things. We're not omniscient. But we live in a world that continually, 24-7, gives us news from every corner of the globe. And if you haven't noticed, it's always going to be bad news. And so we're tempted to think that all things are out of control and that we feel hopeless. But when we have a clear mind, when we understand that Christ is in control and he is sovereign over all, we can pray well. That's why I included in the newsletter this week a prayer, not original to me, but a prayer that's been helpful to me. And I hope it's helpful to you uh, in, in this season when we feel like every moment we're just receiving more bad news and more bad news and more bad news. And we don't know what to do with it. We can be clear minded. We can be sober minded, praying to the one who is bigger than all of these things. That's the first part of being armed with right living is that our lives are marked by prayer. Uh, if you struggle with your prayer life, like all of us do, let's just get that. That's no secret. All Christians struggle with prayer. Uh, join us on Wednesday nights in prayer meeting. Uh, we haven't got it figured out down there either, but we're working together. We're going to spend time praying as the body of Christ. And so I would invite you to join us with that. But not only if we're armed with right living, are we going to be marked by prayer, but we're going to be marked by love. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving one another. It's the same command that he gave us back in chapter 1, verse 22. And as I told you then, it's, it's love stretched out. It's loving with all of your strength. It's the picture of a horse stretched out from tip to tail, uh, the finest horse you can imagine in the race of its life headed for the finish line. Every muscle, every fiber of its being is committed to that race. We're to love that way. We're to love earnestly, love poured out, love stretched out. Now we know that. The Bible tells us over and over and over that we're to love one another. But it keeps making that point because we can do all the other things that Scripture commands us to do. But as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, if we do these things without love, then they're meaningless. We're above all, we're to love one another. And then quoting from the Proverbs, he says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, he, he doesn't mean covering in the way that God covered Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they sinned. And he doesn't mean the way that Christ covers us with his righteousness when he died on the cross in our place. It's not a saving love, a saving covering. But it is this idea that as we seek to be the body of Christ together, there are plenty of opportunities for us to grow annoyed with one another. Any of you who uh, have anybody else in the house with you or you ever have at any point in time, whether you're married and have children, uh, if there's anybody except yourself you know that it's easy to get annoyed by those whom you love, whom you spend time with. Even if you live alone, perhaps there's times you get annoyed with yourself. But we know that when we're together, uh, the people that we love the most, we sometimes annoy one another. And so he's telling us here that we could take the, the lower road. We could keep a list of petty grievances. We could pile them up and all, on, at the appointed time, we could just pull out this list and say, I'm mad at you because you've done this, 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 and this. Or we could love one another because love covers that. Love overlooks those things. Now, I want to be clear. He's not talking about grievous, heinous sins. He's talking about the little petty offenses that happen as believers love together and work together. There are serious sins 
that have to be dealt with, that we can't pull out this verse and just say, well, love overlooks this. Love doesn't overlook murder. Love doesn't overlook sexual abuse. Love doesn't overlook physical abuse. There's all sorts of things that are serious, grievous, heinous sins. And God has given us in his word how to deal with that as a church. And he's given us a civil authorities to deal with that as well. But most of the things that we come into contact with as, as normal Christians, as we're seeking to live together as the body of Christ, they're usually little petty offenses. And we're to love one another because love overcomes and covers a multitude of sins. So to be armed with right living, we're to be marked by prayer, marked by love, and to be marked by hospitality. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You probably know that word for hospitality. It just means a lover of strangers. We're to be hospitable to people around us. But specifically here, he says to one another. He's talking to us as the body of Christ, as believers. And so we're to be marked by hospitality. Lindsay and I, the length of our marriage, we have attempted to do this. I'm certainly not saying that we do it well or or perfectly or anything like that, but we want to be marked by hospitality. Uh, When we last... uh, Fall, November, December, when we were looking at a house here, uh, we wanted to find a house that would allow us to be hospitable. Uh, we we want to show hospitality to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you've done that, if you've uh, attempted to, to have people into your home and to show uh, kindness to others outside the home and do all these sorts of things, you know that there there comes a time when, when some people, uh, they go past the boundaries of hospitality. Now, I certainly don't refer to anybody here, but in the length of our, our 10 years, uh, sometimes you have people over and they pay no attention to the clock. Uh, they, they forgot that the cows have gone to sleep a long time ago. It's time for them to go home. But they, they don't notice that. And so there's times that we can outwardly be hospitable, but on the inside we can be grumbling. And so Peter ups the ante here. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Because yet again, if we're showing it but we're not loving if we're grumbling, uh, then it's all worthless. It's all vain. So we're to be marked by hospitality to one another. You may say, well, I, you know, I can't do that. I, I don't have a place that I can invite people over. It doesn't mean just having people over to your house. There's all sorts of ways that you can be hospitable towards brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of you are doing this because not only have I received it, but I've also seen you do it to others. It's a wonderful encouragement to us to be reminded uh, that to be armed with right living means to be marked by hospitality. But furthermore, he says we're to be marked by service. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. There's several things we could talk about this, but for the length of time, I just want to point out a couple of things. As we go through, you you see that he says, as each has received a gift. Every believer has a spiritual gift. There's no way that you missed the line when Jesus was handing out spiritual gifts. When the Holy Spirit gives these grace gifts, these charisma there in verse 10, as each has received a gift, at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit gives all believers at least one spiritual gift. And Peter here is not giving us a comprehensive lesson on spiritual gifts. They're listed in several other places in the New Testament. And I'm not sure that even those are complete, exhaustive lists. But here Peter just uses categories. He talks about speaking gifts and serving gifts. And even those are interrelated because as we're speaking the word of God, we're serving others. And as we're serving others, we need to be filling it with the words of God. And so he talks about speaking gifts and serving gifts. 
but he tells us that we're to use it to serve one another. It's the same word that we get deacon from. Deacons are to be servants of the church, even as we see here that we're all to serve one another. But if the Holy Spirit has given us this gift and we're to use it to serve others, that means there's no room for boasting. There's no room for pride and saying, look what I can do with my spiritual gift. No, it's to serve one another. How else are we to serve? As good stewards of God's varied grace. The steward was the household manager, the one who owned nothing but was responsible for everything. We're to be good stewards of the spiritual gifts that God has given us. You say, well, you're telling me, Pastor, that I have one, but I don't know uh, what it is. Perfect. You're in the right place. The local church is the place to help you see and affirm your spiritual gifts. I'm not going to give you one of those uh, tests to help you figure it out because I've never found those to be very helpful. Because somehow, anytime we're filling out a test about ourselves, we always think a little more highly of ourselves than we ought to. But if you're looking for a place of service, you say, well, you're telling me I've got a spiritual gift, but I don't know what to do with it. Let me know because we can find places of service. And as you serve in the local church, your brothers and sisters around you can affirm those gifts. They can say, you know, I saw you do this and I thought you did a wonderful job. It was really edifying to me the way you did that. We all serve in various ways, no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, no matter what financial state we're in, no matter what stage of life we're in, we can all serve our Lord. But how do we do it? By the strength that God supplies. You see, whoever speaks is to speak as one who has the oracles of God, the word of God. I have nothing else to give you but the word of God. You could build a mighty mega church around lots of things, but Christ has called us to build his church around the word of God. So whether we're here preaching, teaching in Sunday school, witnessing on the streets, or just counseling one another, encouraging one another, whatever we do with our words, we're to do it with the word of God. But we're also to serve by the strength that God supplies. So whether in speaking or in serving, whatever we're doing, we're doing it not in our own power, because remember, it's God's gracious gift to us. We're to serve by the strength that God supplies. Why is this? What is the, the final mark that Peter gives us of how we're to be armed with right living? We're to be marked by praise. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In all things, we're to do, we're to work, we're to serve, we're to speak, not in our own strength, but in the strength that the Spirit provides us, the strength that God gives us, so that God may be glorified through Christ. It's not about us. It's all about God. Everything we do is to be pointing to the glory of God. And why is Christ the one who is glorifying God? Why is Christ the one that deserves all glory, all dominion? Because he already has all glory and all dominion. Even as we saw at the end of the last chapter, he has gone into the right heaven, into, the, into heaven and is at the right hand of God with all angels and authorities and powers having been submitted to him. Christ has ascended. All things are being put under his feet and he has all glory, all dominion forever and ever and ever. All the glory of this world, no matter what awards you may get, what praise you may get from your fellow human beings, it's all fading. You can ask the, the highest award winners in any field, of sports or entertainment or uh, academics or science, all of that glory is fading. 
But Christ's glory never fades. His dominion never ends. He will reign forever and ever and ever. May our lives be marked by right belief, right thinking, right living, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you for your word. We're thankful that you equip us to be the people you've called us to be. That you're using your Holy Spirit, Father, to make us like your son, Jesus Christ. Each of us here have room to grow, areas to grow in, to be more like Christ. So would you correct our thinking? Would you help us to live more faithfully, not in our own strength, but in your strength? May we glorify you in all things. It's in Christ's name we pray.